would like to thank each one of the brothers and sisters that have joined with us here this morning to worship. It is such a privilege to praise our Lord together as a gathered body of believers. And to those who are joining with us online, I want to encourage you to gather with your fellow believers as often as is possible. I know that for some this is beyond control, and if so, and if you're watching online and you're shut in at home or whatever it might be, um, please don't hesitate to let us know and allow us to bring some of this wonderful Christian fellowship to you as we're able. But in the meantime, whether here or online, we're going to continue our time of worship through the preaching of God's Word. As we get started, I wanted to ask, how many of you have ever had one of those serendipitous moments where someone or something appeared in your life only for a moment and then disappeared, and yet they left an indelible mark upon your life? I know it might be something that it feels like I'm pitching the next plot line for the Nicholas Sparks romance movie, the whirlwind sweeps in and sweeps out and completely changes our lives, but it does happen sometimes, and to confess, I, I had a moment like this. Um, I had a brother in the Lord named Pastor Stuart Angus. He was a pastor of Kirikiri Baptist Church in Kirikiri, New Zealand. I was an 18-year-old backpacker on the opposite end of the earth from my home. And I was wrestling with a call to ministry that I hadn't yet come to terms with. And I was just attending his church as it fell along my travel route. And yet, by the grace of God, Pastor Stewart came to this obviously foreign young man. I was an obvious backpacker sitting in his congregation. And he, out of the blue, just goes, you want to speak and lead worship at our youth group this week? He didn't know me from Adam. I was very clearly not from there, didn't know my history, didn't know my theological leanings, and yet that moment and the subsequent engagement with his youth group crystallized for me God's plans for me to enter into the ministry. I haven't talked to Pastor Stewart since. Um, he has no idea the profound effect that the Lord allowed him to have on my life. But for a fleeting moment, this pastor turned my life upside down. And I'm sure you're wondering what I'm getting at here. Well, today, in our passage, we're going to finally acknowledge something of an elephant in the room when it comes to the book of Hebrews. This name has been mentioned three times with no explanation. But today, we are going to get to who on earth is Melchizedek. Three other times in Hebrew so far, we have had descriptions of Christ as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and no explanation as to what that means. But Melchizedek is one of those characters that sweeps into Scripture in Genesis and disappears in less than a chapter. And we just hear blips of him afterwards, but we don't know 
much about him. Mentioned in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then eight times in the book of Hebrews. But as we'll see from our passage this morning, the significance of Melchizedek in the story is much larger, larger than the number of references might imply. So as we dive into this, would you pray with me? And we're going to open our passage this morning, starting in Hebrews 7. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word to equip the hearts of your people. Lord, no part of your word is outside of the bounds of your work upon believers' hearts and lives. We pray that you would be glorified in the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. And as has been already prayed, we pray that it would find fertile ground in our hearts and our souls, that you might apply it in such a way that our lives look different going out from here. God, you are good. You have provided for us examples and have used your own word to interpret your own word. That we aren't left scratching our heads and wondering, but you have, you have provided answers. And Lord, for that we are grateful. Lord, we thank you that we have access to your word, free and unhindered. We pray we would not take that for granted, but that we might spend as much time as we can and enjoy our time with your word as much as we can. Lord, that it might make an indelible impression upon our hearts and our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're actually going to start in chapter 6, verse 19, just to get a little bit of backstory. Then we're going to read Hebrews 7 through to verse 10. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. 
This is God's Word. I mentioned that in previous messages that we are quite, quite grateful for the way we follow preaching through entire chapters and books of Scripture. I don't know about you, but I haven't heard a whole lot of messages preached on who Melchizedek is, because it is not an easy message to preach and not an easy topic to, to parse through. But why do we care about this obscure, one-off Old Testament character? Well, according to Hebrews in particular, our Savior is in some way identified with this Melchizedek. The three mentions of Melchizedek earlier in Hebrews all call Christ a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we get to that question, well, if he is a priest after that order, who is Melchizedek? Well, we don't rightly know exactly who he is. But we, what we do know of his story comes from Genesis 14. Here, after rescuing his nephew Lot from captivity, Abraham meets with two kings, Bera, king of Sodom, and Melchizedek, king of Salem. And we're told, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. There have been many, many attempts to identify who this Melchizedek might be. There's a long-standing tradition. Maybe this was Shem, son of Noah, and Abraham's ancestor, still alive and functioning as a priest. Maybe this was an angelic being. Neither of those have had anything but speculation to them and no scriptural evidence that I've seen. A more popular idea is perhaps he was the pre-incarnate son of God appearing to Abraham. But how can Melchizedek be the son of God if he also resembles the son of God? How could Christ's priesthood be after the order of Melchizedek if he himself was Melchizedek? There is no universal agreement on exactly who this man was. But in my opinion, from my study, my, my leanings is that he was a mortal man nonetheless. A man who would point our hearts and our minds towards Christ. Melchizedek is what we call a type. In biblical typology, we understand that certain events and people and things are designed by God to resemble and to point to something greater in the future. And this is an area where we do need to be careful because then it becomes easy to turn everything into allegory, any hard passage, any difficult thing. Well, it doesn't really mean what it's saying in the passage. It actually is just a symbol for X, Y, Z. So we 
sometimes like to do that rather than just take it at its original meaning because that's easier for us. And that's why when we're talking about biblical types, it's much easier and more reliable for us to rely on Scripture itself. There are likely many types within Scripture that are not made explicit, but many more are also made clear by the Word, and those for sure we know are accurate. A great example, 1 Corinthians 10 says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. These things happened to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The crossing of the Red Sea by Israel is explicitly identified as being a type of baptism. As they cross through that Red Sea, it points us to something more and greater. An Old Testament situation that has its own story and its own weight, but it tells a whole second story when viewed through the lens of the New Testament. Two stories being told at once. Well, this morning we have the story of a king in Canaan, the priest who has his own story to tell, as short as it might be, but it takes on an entire new value when viewed through a New Testament lens. The name and title. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Gives us a hint at who this man is. The name Melchizedek, literally a compound of king and righteousness. We have the king of righteousness. And Salem, literally meaning peace. Hebrews 2, or verse 2 of Hebrews 7, unpacks his name and title for us. He is first by translation of his name. King of righteousness, he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So we have this king of righteousness, king of a city called peace. Side note, that city quite likely is ancient Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So the, the ties to Christ become apparent quite quickly. We're going to come back to Melchizedek's priesthood, which will be, Lord willing, the primary focus of next week passage in verse 11 to 19. But first I want to address verse 3 here. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues, a priest forever. That right there is what makes a lot of people determine that this must be either Christ or an angelic being. For who on earth besides these could claim to be without father or mother or genealogy or beginning or end of life? And if you look back at Genesis 14, you'll realize that this is new information being brought up by the writer of Hebrews. Nowhere in Genesis does it say any of these things, that he has either 
beginning of days or end of life or any of those kind of things. I'm convinced that our writer of Hebrews is again typing Melchizedek as a Christ-like figure because we don't know anything about him. He has no end of days because he pops into the story and disappears. There is no end of Melchizedek. We don't know when his life ended. He has no beginning of days. His genealogy is not recorded. The Hebrew people were absolutely fastidious about their genealogies. You would know exactly from whom you came and who came from you for generations and generations. But Melchizedek just sweeps in, he's there, and then he's gone. Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is not saying that Melchizedek has no earthly parents or that he did not die, but that's not even in the story. He is using the fact that Melchizedek came into this story and disappeared from this story just as quickly to point towards a greater priest who would be after the order of Melchizedek, who is Christ, pointing to the greatness of Christ. Someone so great as a king and priest, Melchizedek, we just don't know the information. But Christ we do know, and he is greater. We don't know when Melchizedek was born, but we do know that Christ had no beginning. We don't know when Melchizedek died, but we do know that Christ reigns eternally. Melchizedek, we just never hear the end of his priestly reign. But our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, continues a priest forever. And throughout Hebrews, Christ is repeatedly called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But what does that mean? What is the priestly order of Melchizedek, and why, why after that order rather than the usual priestly line? Well, before getting there, our author goes to great lengths to set up his upcoming explanation of the priesthood of Melchizedek in verses 11 to 19. So, but he does this by, isn't here, tell them to rewatch this week. But he does this by establishing Melchizedek's multiple roles, both as king and priest, and then establishes him as being superior even to Abraham. First, our passage this morning establishes Melchizedek and ultimately Christ's assumption of these multiple roles. And he does so to help us understand the, the total difference between his role and the role of Abraham in the priestly line. Out of prudence, our governmental system and most democratic nations' governmental systems are built on a system of checks and balances. Constitution, a charter of rights and freedoms, a separate judiciary. All of that designed to maintain a balance of power. No politician should be able to run roughshod over the rights and freedoms of their people because of this separation of power. You only have to take one look at the many totalitarian regimes that have existed in our world and still do to know what happens when one person is vested with unchecked power. And 
unfortunately, our, our system doesn't always work the way it's supposed to either. We discussed that a lot last week in the Bill C-4 and all that kind of thing, but thankfully our, our trust and our hope is, is not in the kingdom in which we live. But ancient Israel had a similar setup of checks and balances in that there was always a separation between the priesthood and the kingship. Kept a modicum of balance within the halls of power. But Melchizedek was different. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. And even greater, when we look towards Christ, we see him assuming what we call the threefold office, the office of prophet, priest, and king. In the London Baptist Confession of Faith, we can read, This office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. The number and order of offices is necessary, for in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. And in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God. And in respect to our averseness and utter inability to return to God, and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. We have our prophet, priest, and king in Jesus. And praise God, we need not worry about the consequences of that consolidated power. For Christ has held all this power from the beginning of creation, from eternity past, and proven himself worthy of it. The modern, particularly Western, suspicion and concern towards anyone holding total authority is rightly warranted. But it's only warranted because we have no perfect ruler. Consider David, rightly viewed, even within Scripture, as one of the greatest rulers ever to live, called a man after God's own heart. And yet he still needed the prophet Nathan to come and call him to account, call him out of sin and reprimand him. But the authority totally held within the hand of Christ needs no checks nor balances. He is indeed the perfect prophet, priest, and king. That leads me to the second point that our author was getting at here of Melchizedek's superiority over Abraham. You'll recognize that regularly throughout the book of Hebrews, which is obviously written to Hebrews, we have our author setting Christ up as greater than even the greatest of the patriarchs, Abraham being one. Our author is setting up to place Christ in his priesthood over that of the Levitical priesthood that his readers would have known and revered. He's hedging his people against the temptation to return to this priesthood that they know by showing the greater priesthood found in Christ who is after not the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. connection with the Levitical priesthood comes in verses 9 and 10, which say, one might even say that Levi himself, 
who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Levi is the great-grandson of Abraham. And as we discussed in our Christmas series, when we talked about genealogies, the Hebrew understanding was that the forefather was worthy of the greatest honor because out of his progeny came such and such a effect or action. So out of Abraham came Levi, and from Levi came the Levitical line. So if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then it, by association, Melchizedek is greater than Levi and any of the priestly line. That Levitical priesthood was of paramount importance to the people of Israel because that was their direct line to God. Their only connection and intermediary came in the form of these priests. But through Abraham, these priests are made subservient to an even greater priestly line, that of Melchizedek and, most importantly, ultimately, of Christ. Author displays this in two ways, the blessing of Abraham and the tithe of Abraham. Back in Hebrews 7, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Who had the promises? It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. If a dog somehow learned to talk and thought to come and bless you, beyond your surprise at a talking dog, you likely wouldn't put too much stock in a canine blessing. You're obviously of a higher order than those creatures. Why should a dog bless you? I'm the higher creature, so I should be the one blessing him. This might not hit quite the same in today's world, but for a person of lower class or lower status to presume to bless someone above their station would have been unheard of. Who are they to bless me? I'm above them. You would only receive and acknowledge the blessing of one who was recognized as being above you. And Abraham wasted no time in receiving the blessing of Melchizedek. Then if that weren't enough, Abraham then paid a tithe to him. To him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything, all of the spoils of war here. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they, these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. The idea of giving a tithe wasn't foreign to the day in which Abraham lived. To give a portion of the spoils of war to whichever deity or particular nation venerated was commonplace. The impressive thing here is, skipping forward a little, in Israel and among the Hebrew people, it was understood that all of the spoils belonged to God. God got to decide how any of it was used. Everything was the Lord's. 
This wasn't just a donation to some general local deity. The command to tithe regularly was given by God to Moses hundreds of years later, after Abraham and is recorded in Deuteronomy. The purpose of this tithe was to support the priests and the operation of the temple or tabernacle. So here we have Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, tithing not to the priests of Levi, but to Melchizedek with the eye to supporting that priesthood and the operation of his worship of God. The key to all of that is in verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. That's setting up the contrast here. The Levitical priests are just men, men who died, created beings with a beginning and an end, priests who laid down their priesthood at the end of their life, and pointing towards Christ, Melchizedek, who himself did have a beginning and did have an end, but it's not recorded here. It's just testified that he lived and was a priest. All of that points to Christ, who, all caps, lives. God the Son, who is the aim of all of Scripture. In John 5, 39-40, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This passage, and indeed all of Scripture, points towards Christ. There's so much set up here for the toppling of the dependence on the Levitical priesthood coming up in our next passage. And Lord willing, we'll get to dive deeper and compare and contrast Christ and Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood next week. But today there's a couple things that I hope you leave here with. I hope you leave with an understanding that Melchizedek is but a blurry image of the clarity we have in Christ. I think Melchizedek was included in the story in such a limited scope with the mindset of us wanting more to that story. And in Christ we find so, so much more. And I hope you understand the heart of our author this morning. He wanted his audience to see the surpassing worthiness of Christ over and above the law, over and above the Levitical priesthood in Israel. And I get the sneaking suspicion that there is not a major push in the lives of Elk Point Baptist Church to fall back into Judaism. I don't know too many of you that come from a Judaistic background, so perhaps you're not on the verge of falling back into Judaism. But I know that each one of us comes from a kingdom that is not the kingdom of Christ and from a worship of something and someone that is not Christ, and we must 
do battle against worshiping any who is not Christ. I pray that no religion, no idol whatsoever will obscure your view of Christ. That you would toss all of them aside as pale distractions and pale shadows of the truth that we have in Christ. I hope that you can find your hope in the true eternal King of Peace. That the reigning King of Righteousness has found his place as the Lord of your life. And finally, I pray this week that, like Abraham, you won't hesitate for a second to bend the knee, receive the blessing, and give to God what he requires of you. There's no requirement. There is no you must. There is no consequence given to Abraham that he finally goes, okay, fine. I will receive your blessing and I will tithe to you. Abraham immediately recognizes the worthiness of Melchizedek. And I pray that each one of you would immediately see the worthiness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And whatever it might be that you have as your spoils of war, whatever it might be that you're proud of, whatever it might be that you've earned through hard work, whatever skills or gifts or talents or abilities you have that you've honed, you've put together for your use and the good of yourself and your family and whatever it might be, whatever investments you have, whatever, doesn't matter. Whatever is yours, whatever you hold precious, that all of it would be immediately and without hesitation thrown down before our great high priest, our great prophet, our great king, and given totally to him. God might require much of you. Indeed, he requires that each one of us takes up our cross to follow him, giving up even family, giving up even all that we have. But the blessing that awaits those who are willing to throw down everything for the sake of Christ far outweighs the cost. As we close, would you join with me in prayer? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would loosen our grip on anything that we hold too tightly. That we might bow before you. And Lord, as we reach these passages that are sometimes difficult to understand, we thank you that you've given us your word to clarify. We pray that we would search your scriptures for the interpretation of our to understand scriptures. Lord, that we might be okay with an element of mystery within our faith. That we as finite beings will never totally understand you as an infinite and most high God. But that that would not stop us from a moment from 
doing everything we can to know you and understand you. And may you bless our efforts to know and understand you. Teach us more about who you are and what you have done, both in history and in our lives. May we as a a church seek after your truth wholeheartedly. Lord, we commit this day to you. We commit this church to you. And we commit the reading and singing and praying and preaching of your word to the work of your spirit to apply to our hearts. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You please stand with me as you're able and hear our benediction from Hebrews 13. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing to his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.